Welcome to Blazing History, where we are blazing through history one week at a time. Facebook.com slash Blazing Shows. That's B-L-A-I-S-I-N Shows. On Twitter, at Blazing Shows. And my brand new website, go check it out, BlazingShows.com. Hope you've had a great week and that all is well. And joining me as we're going to talk about January 20th which every four years is a big day in our nation's history because a president gets inaugurated. In this case, it'll be Joe Biden being inaugurated as the 46th president on January 20th. And Dan and I are going to talk, Dan Platt and I, he's a history minor for the uh, City Hello. University of New York, also uh, very involved in political organizing and all that good stuff. So there's a lot of really cool tie-ins, and Dan and I are going to start exploring those right now here. Dan, thank you very much for giving me a few minutes here on Blazing History. Oh, my pleasure. I appreciate you jumping on. Dan also hosts a show via the Pacifica Radio Network and wherever you get your podcasts. It's called The Three Left Show, uh, which... Pretty Dude, I could explain it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a well, no, well. Sometimes it does take a, a second. Uh, so it's a two-hour political talk show where we do news analysis of topics and alternatives from a radical left perspective. The three left stand for socialism, anarchism, and ecology. Making those words a little less scary, a little more putting a little more depth to them. Um, and also covering, mostly just focusing on the alternatives, the things that are real as well. So we flip-flop between theory, practice, um, projects that people are actually doing, um, building mini socialism, you know, just as, uh, you know, economic transition and long game, playing the long game as it were. You know, some shows just interview activists, so it's short-term stuff. Um, yeah. Some talk strategy in a midterm, this is more long-term, but looking at all the little pieces, trying to bring them together, try to stitch a hole. Very cool. Well, uh, certainly there are a lot of uh, stuff here. There, there is a lot of stuff that we can do in terms of uh, tie-ins from a historical perspective. Dan, what's the first presidential inauguration memory that you have? Um, I suppose it would need to be... See, sometimes it's created, right? I felt I uh, had a memory of 2000, but it was actually the clips from Michael Moore's like Fahrenheit 9-11 or something. Yeah. Then, so I suppose it would have to be Obama, but it, it's not like I watch it like the Thanksgiving Day Parade. You know, you say it's a very important in history, but it really it's just the kind of officiating of the office. And of course, I'm the, I'm the side of like, I prefer we not have a president at all, or we at least split up the power of the president. Mm -hmm. Americans seem to flip-flop between wanting the president to have supreme authority, so it's one person you can blame. And this is certainly, like, from the system's point of view, a very nice uh, function of having a big executive office is that it's one person. If they're mad about anything, they can just be mad at this one person. Um, versus if it's split up, and then it's more complicated. But it also means, like, well, if things are going wrong, it means there's a lot of people to cast aspersions on uh, or support and say it's um, as the Trump base would say, it's like when something good happened, it was all Trump right? Uh, or, the, or the president, whoever that is. It, it's like the manager in baseball. It's like the head coach of a, of a team. We all kind of like to have this one person to throw the shade. 
Yes, or or or, or look or at price. when there's a success. Yeah, um, but really, um, all social action is a so you know is, is a community effort or a team effort. Uh, maybe there's someone who's doing a little more, or you can kind of they have more quality of some kind. But otherwise, like maybe the more just more charismatic, and that's what sticks out. You know, I've I've a uh, one of my gripes with the system overall is that rewards charisma over other uh, intelligences, you know, mm-hmm. more often than not. Like uh, when I read a stat once upon a time of like more when people are hired, they're more likely to be hired if they're taller for executive really? positions. Yeah. And that's why I'm like, well, this is all uh, bull crap because if it's just a matter of height sometimes, then how does anything else matter? My fellow citizens. I stand here today humbled by the task before us, grateful for the trust you've bestowed, mindful of the sacrifices borne by our ancestors. I thank President Bush for his service to our nation. as well as the generosity and cooperation he has shown throughout this transition. Forty-four Americans have now taken the presidential oath. The words have been spoken during rising tides of prosperity and the still waters of peace. Yet, every so often, the oath is taken amidst gathering clouds and raging storms. At these moments, America has carried on not simply because of the skill or vision of those in high office, but because we, the people, have remained faithful to the ideals of our forebears and true to our founding documents. So it has been, so it must be with this generation of Americans. That we are in the midst of crisis is now well understood. Our nation is at war against a far-reaching network of violence and hatred. Our economy is badly weakened, a consequence of greed and irresponsibility on the part of some, but also our collective failure to make hard choices and prepare the nation for a new age. Homes have been lost, jobs shed, businesses shuttered. Our health care is too costly, our schools fail too many, And each day brings further evidence that the ways we use energy strengthen our adversaries and threaten our planet. For me, what it was, since you and I are roughly the same age, in terms of Obama and the inauguration was, I grew up in a small town, uh, Port Henry, New York, right along uh, Lake Champlain in the Adirondack Mountains, and a nearly predominantly white town. area sure so here we had this this black president the first black president in history who had all this charisma and energy and there was just this sort of feel-good vibe from his inauguration where our high school math teacher stopped the class and put on the inauguration on on the little tv Hmm. it's just so incredible that here it is, a teacher stopped what they were doing to show us the inauguration as high school students. 
Yeah, they, he could have done it in many other times, but it's like, yeah, this was, I mean, we were discussing in the pre-show that it was very much hyped. And it was one of the few times that at least those that supported him or voted in the election believe the hype. There were skeptical voices and I was skeptical of them until, you know, two years later when the Congress flipped again, uh, partly as a reaction, but also because the Democratic Congress, you had, you know, basically as a, as a then, you know, as a teenager progressive John Stewart watcher, I just wanted the mm-hmm. Democrats in charge because the narrative was Democrats in charge means better results. Um, or we get the change we want. You know, Obama's inauguration was almost um, pitched as a return to norm- normalcy for the for the sensible, for the anti-war, for the uh, those that did not like everything the Bush administration was doing. Right. I mean, because you had 9-11 and you had the, the war in Afghanistan and then you had the war in Iraq about a year and a half later, maybe even a little less, uh, where it was really nothing more than at the end of a day at the end of the day trying to finish something that George H.W. Bush the father started and and George W. was trying to get it finished and then Obama was finishing everything that W. started um, as far as the wars but also just we're going to fix immigration we're going to fix health care and it was done in that bipartisan way um, which also meant just we're going to do what corporations want we're going to do what our donors want. And it's like, well, this wasn't any change at all. Um, in fact, if anything, you had things like Citizens United, which was a cementation that everything that you didn't like about the Bush era was actually always going to be the case. So it was just kind of like, um, and this is other commentators after the fact now have said like, Obama was strip mining hope from our generation. Like it was ex- being extracted as a commodity. <laughs> which made a lot of people money. Um, now, t- to get back to your original question of like, do I have strong memories of a wait? No. What I do is I have strong memories of four years ago because I actually went to the inauguration uh, to protest it. Really? Particularly to protest the system overall, but Trump was just also being inaugurated, so why not? Um, I find it interesting that like, you have the Women's March a bit later, and that was much larger. But during the inauguration, it was pretty much us far lefties that were there um, on the margins outside of the mall, um, kind of raising hell. But there was also a rally as well. And it was a pretty good um, energy as far as like a lot of different mixing of opponents to the Trump administration. And... Yeah, so it was a memorable day for me as just as far as it was a lot of fun. My friend got arrested. Um, there was a lot of, you know, there was the, there was the Black Block riot riding around. Um, then, uh, because the police from the get-go were trying to kettle them, arrest them, mm. simply for marching without a permit. Then you respond by breaking things. Um, mostly you get away. But uh, that's my interpretation. You don't have to take my word for it. Well, I mean, you were there. I wasn't. I mean, sure, but I was also like different. also out of. I kept wide of the chaos, um, so I wouldn't get kettled. And sure. uh, yes, uh, things I learned from Occupy: how to not get kettled um, yeah. when the police when you're basically trying to express, you know, use the, you know the public square, but the police want to like barricade you into a spot, so then you basically effectively detain for as long as they deem fit. 
which in the case of those kettle that day was until was like 12 hours later. Jeez. They're not wow. formally processed for until 12 hours. Um, and yes, that's without access to the bathroom food or whatever. Oh, jeez, That's can't even imagine how rough that is. Uh, Dan Platt, host of the three left show and a history minor as he is here with me, blaze Bryant, as we're talking about inaugurations, protests, all that sort of really timely stuff that we are dealing with as a country right now. You were part of the uh, Occupy protest, which I think is uh, really cool and fascinating because that was such a long, uh, I don't want to say drawn out protest, but it was very long and, and really passion and passion still really, and it's still going on. It still hasn't been matched. I mean, you have the uprisings that have been occurring in black neighborhoods, black cities. Mm -hmm. um, and, they, and the uprising is the right term, I believe. Occupy was also something of an uprising, um, but it was also more of a festival. It was almost a much of a festival because people would ask, what is your purpose? What is your goal? What is your demand? And it's like, well, our demand is that we continue to exist, really. Exist as we're, well, the way we're doing this right now. Practicing anarchism, doing a government assembly, almost having a parallel society in parks. And I will qualify that I was active with Zuccotti Park in New York City, which was the original. Um, wow. Sorry for the ums. That's okay. And it was a kind of radicalization. I have my own radicalization story, but I think what I wanted to impress was um, that, I mean, this year, it seems like the inauguration is kind of a, actually more of a broadcast, it will be a broadcast event, I assume, a broadcast syndicated yeah. agent and not like a political rally or a ceremony or it's a ceremony in the same way that like, I guess the queen's Jubilee is a ceremony. Right. Except <clears throat> for the fact that there's not going to be a national mall that's open uh, for the inauguration or any of that. Right. It's, it's, it's going to be like the Emmys. Yeah. That's, that's probably a good way of putting it actually. Because my, uh, who was it? It was my brother, maybe it was my fa family member um, talking about it. Like it, listing the musical acts like mm -hmm. you know we could have a yearly you know national pageant of musical acts showcasing the diversity of american creativity where we have well i mean i suppose the grammys are meant to symbolize do this but like what if we have one that's more nationalistic something that's put on by the government um or or sponsored um but that would be a way to taxpayer money it should be private and thus i guess the uh the Grammys. That's but an then, interesting thought. But it's, 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 it's a question of like, you know, it's a binary between something that's nonprofit government uh, managed versus something that's then private, but completely commercial. Um, yeah. But then how do you, it, it's a matter of, or, or do we try and do something where we like highlight up and coming artists who haven't signed a big record label because we know how much, you know, that all dictates into this, yeah, and it could be done genre by genre, which right. the Grammys focuses on what's popular instead of what I say creative showcase. I mean, like, we're going to do some dubstep. We're going to do some hybrid stuff. We're going to, like, we're going to seek out, like, a, a YouTube, the, you know, the next Bieber or something like that. But right. what I mean is, like, the, the third option from that binary is um, things that are an event would be managed by musicians 
by the musicians for the musicians, you know, a republic by the people for the people would be actual more democracy, not less. And I think one of those American myths is that we have, you know, when Republicans say like we're a republic, not a democracy, they're absolutely right. Um, democracy would entail that we have more electoral power, more people participating. For example, other countries in the world, some require being registered as a voter. We do not. Um, this does have effects like in local elections, you only have 30% participating. You know, what? how is that different than a merchant republic from the Renaissance? where it's the 30 richest, 30% richest people, the, those that own property. Um, now, as far as ownership, I suppose it's more split down half and half, like in our city. Mm -hmm. um, but others, it's, it's 30, 70. Yeah, but then, and, yeah. you know, on that same sort of token, Dan, it's really inexcusable given how much access there is to information. Right. And that's kind of what drives people nuts is that the... The Democrat, a lot of other things have been democratized yeah. um, via the internet, but not governance, not our workplaces. Like the workplace is the most authoritarian place we have. Yeah. And it only gets a little bit better from there, um, where you have some local governments, state governments that are staffed with technocrats, which their ideology is based on we technical experts know best and everyone else needs to just conform to our plans, our plans of automation, our plans of uh, smart cities, which is all based on automating governance because like it's, it's based on a very cynical uh, human nature is bad. Humans suck. So we should just automate business cycles, automate governance, automate our lives. Right. Or as much as possible to take it out of human hands when really what actually works out in the world is actually democratizing and letting more people actually make decisions. The imbalance or the chaos or the confusion occurs when you have some people who have are empowered, but many people who aren't. And especially when they're told they're empowered, that they have more power in a marketplace, but right. they don't have any power in their lives really at all, except over what shampoo they're buying. But even that is then constrained by monopoly or cartels right. and, and business. Think of, yeah, and think of how more accessible from a, from a pedestrian or transportation, how overall more accessible our cities and towns would be and the lesser need to be dumping tons and tons and tons of money into infrastructure because... That's been a constant forefront sort of thinking measure this whole time because, well, the people are involved. No, I want to bring up, um, since this is a history show, right, that um, yeah, the, uh, there's a concept of called the imperial presidency. There's a book titled that, I believe. And um, it kind of chronicles how from World War II onward, when America became a world power and subsumed the place of protecting global trading with our Navy, uh, which we still do, and certain geopolitical analysts, like in the next 50 years, will we still be able to do that? As soon as you take the American Navy away, does the global economy 
stop functioning as, as needed, especially after coronavirus, the consumption patterns of the whole world are basically shifting like we've reached peak consumption, both in demographics, you know, it's, anyway, I'm getting off track. Right. Um, but what I'm talking about is that um, since the 50s, the president or 40s have been, has been acquiring either by, not always consciously, more responsibilities, more power. Um, the ability to declare war, to send troops, the fact that the president, um, whether it be W, can just say, I'm going to send, I'm going to authorize troops, and the Congress just has to authorize my use of the force. Um, And this is because Congress, when we start taking on more global responsibility, you have local Congress people, right, who don't want that responsibility because, well, it's a lot of pressure, A, B, the constituents don't want them to be responsible or like they'll be mad because whatever you do, it's usually the wrong thing. Um, but somebody has to do it. Somebody has to be the global um, peacekeeper, right? Right. Uh, it can't be done in a community. That's what the UN was for. So it's kind of like a, you actually make the UN more powerful, more of a collectual global institution, which means people actually vote in elections for UN representatives instead of them just being appointed. We actually make it more of a democratic institution. Again, something that is very unlikely. Same thing as making the EU more uh, democratic, which is what's its big drawback. Um, right. And the same goes for our own country. It's like, you know, what's wrong with America? We're just not democratic enough is kind of my, my broad answer. Um, and that's also how my leftism, socialism is expressed in that like really what it is is just more democracy. And what it comes down to is the people who oppose lefty politics are really just don't like democracy. They just don't want to. It's not about just sharing, not sharing wealth or um, distributing it equitably. It's about power. And you have worldviews, right? It's not really up to, it's not just about individuals mm-hmm. power grabbing, but about the beliefs that power can't be trusted beyond a few good moral people or no one's moral. We're all sinners. So really nobody, we should, we should just have a system to make sure that as few people can even have power. Better to have one corrupt person than a hundred corrupt people stiffing each other over. Right, but it, you, it's high time that we as a country, I think, need to start remaking history because there is so much that needs to be changed. I mean, I look back at what happened on January 6th of this year and can't help but think, if an electoral college didn't exist, would what happened happened? No, like I was just covering on my program, plug, the um, blockchain and its relevance to doing lefty politics. Mm-hmm. Um, but particularly um, even this, is, I think this is something any person, regardless of like how you feel about socialism, uh, the evil socialism can um, attest that corporations have more leverage than you in the marketplace, right? If sure. you book a ticket on an airline and they cancel your flight, it is on you. You have the responsibility to get a refund. Why not have a contract that if they, if your flight gets canceled uh, or if your package doesn't get to you, then if A, then B, which is simple coding. So why doesn't, why isn't that kind of contract coded into that user agreement that you check mark? It isn't. Um, and why? Because of centralized power. You know, the corporation has their server. And when you use the internet, you're going through that. So blockchain is networking computers together so that it's a mesh network instead of being 
uh, spokes into the center of a wheel. So what was that going on? So with, with blockchain, with this kind of kind of network or contracts, like if, if the if the vote total is this, then you know election is won, right? There doesn't have to be all these other ceremonies, traditions. And the electoral college itself is like a tradition of slaveholding states having as much power as non-slave owning states. Right, because that's when it was set up. Yes, not the- it's. Putting it, yeah. I'm just being perfectly clear that you're not putting a spin on this because it was set up that way that time. It's later on that like people whose interest it is to keep it going would then make other justifications saying like, no, this is about smaller states having as much say as larger states. Um, but there was there was court court cases in the Victorian, meaning late 19th century that were all about this question of like, is representation about how many people you actually have or is it about the geography, um, which includes property and thus the value of the property. Right. And it was like a, you know, does one man equal one vote? And this was like our senator's constitutional. Like this, this question was fought over vigorously in the 1880s or 90s. And, well, I mean, um, and even before that, Dan, go back to the three-fifths compromise. Yes, exactly. Terms of how people were counted. I'm just trying to bring it even closer, like a post-slavery context, so sure. that anyone who's listening will be like, well, you know, that was so long ago. And like, no, 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 no. It was only like in the 30s that we actually made senators directly electable mm. before they were appointed by parties. They were, they're, you know, by the party structure. I sometimes want to joke. Um, it's not just a joke. I'm trying to write an essay about, around the idea that we live in one party states. Um, you know, people say North Korea is such a nightmare. Well, as far as like, well, really what a one party communist state is, is that you do politics through this institution, the party. If you earn the you could be a minority party, but you're kind of a non-factor. Maybe you can make some amendments here or there. It feels like you're participating, but I've I've interacted with the state legislature in New York, and I can tell you that there is oppressive atmosphere when it comes to the leadership. Whoever has the leadership is setting everything. Sure. No and doubt about that. Now, on the national level, it seems more split, but between gerrymandering, money in politics, super PACs, and the kinds of other voter suppression of various types. It seems like like that's also being calcified into not like one party is always going to be in charge, but when the party is in charge, it's like a one party state. And that's why when the president changes, that's why it feels like such an apocalypse because it's basically saying for four years, you will have no empowerment in this country. Um, That's what was told to liberals when Trump was elected. Um, It's what was told to small business owners who own boats, uh, you will have no more empowerment when Biden is in power. Oh, that's, uh, a, that's a perfect way. Yeah, we're out of time here. Uh, Dan Platt, he is a political organizer as well as a history minor from the City University of New York. Dan, mm-hmm. I can't thank you enough. This has been a lot of fun. Thanks a lot. No, thank you. I love this stuff. That's all the time we have. Thanks for listening to Blazing History, Blazing Through History, one week at a time. What do you think? Let me know at facebook.com slash blazin shows. That's B-L-A-I-S-I-N shows. 
on Twitter at Blazin' Shows or email me, blazinshows at gmail.com. You can subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts or on my website, blazinshows.com. To quote the late Franklin D. Roosevelt, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Take care of yourself and we'll talk again next week. On Blazin' History, I'm Blaze Bryant.